Welcome everyone um, to the 2020 Bench Meets Bar Part 2. I'm Kate Cruikshank and I'm co-chair of the Education Subcommittee of the BBA's Bankruptcy Section, along with Dimitri Lev, who has chosen to remain in the audience rather than shave. <laughs> so thank you, Dimitri. Uh, we have a great program for you today. The BBA has a uh, short time ago circulated materials to all of you, all of the attendees, and included in the materials are an agenda, um, which you can see here, and as well as um, two PowerPoints, um, two PowerPoints that um, will be for you to use to follow along in the program. So we're fortunate here today to have to be joined by four Massachusetts bankruptcy judges, including Chief Judge uh, Christopher Panos, uh, Judge Hoffman, Judge Bailey, and Judge Boswick. Um, we are going to have two panels for you today, um, and uh, they're a great they're great panels, and they're very timely considering uh, the the pandemic that we're going through. So. Um, the first panel is going to be discussing the impact of the, the emergency measures that have been, emergency laws that have been adapted uh, in light of the pandemic. Sorry, I got a helicopter going over. Um, and how that's impacted the Chapter 13 practice. Uh, the panel is being moderated by Marcus Lipton, and he's going to introduce his fellow panel members um, Judge Bailey and Judge Boswick will be participating in this panel. Um, the second panel, uh, which will start at four, is on the Small Business Reorganization Act and how uh, the laws, how they, the um, new law has been interpreted in different cases. Uh, we have Steve Weiss here with us today, who is the first appointed Small Business Chapter 5 trustee and he's going to discuss the role of, of the trustee from a practical standpoint. And Judges Hoffman and uh, Judges Panos will be joining in on that panel. So as, um, as the, you heard at the beginning, if you have questions, please submit them using the Q&A function uh, on the, that you have in front of you, and the panels will get to them as they have time. So uh, with that, I'm going to hand the the program over to Marcus Lipton. So uh, Marcus, thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thanks everyone for attending today. Um, I hope we, we have what will be a really great panel for everyone. Uh, we're happy to have uh, Carolyn Benkowski, the Chapter 13 trustee with us, uh, Sarah Tricot from Murphy and King, uh, Marcus Pratt from Corday and Associates, and of course, uh, Judges Bailey and Judge Boswick. Um, before we get into the substance of the, the program, I have to uh, give a disclaimer on behalf of our judges who are here with us that, uh, as you all probably know already, anything that the judges say today cannot be relied on by any attorneys in future court proceedings. There is no uh, binding precedent to be set here. And if you uh, respond to any of the judges in court, well, Your Honor, at the bench bar, you said this or one of the other judges said that. Uh, that will not carry the day for you and will probably get you perhaps a dirty look. Uh, so just keep that in mind as we go through. Uh, 
So um, a lot has changed in, in the entire world over the last few months and in our little bankruptcy corner of the world, quite a bit has, has changed as well. Um, we've had the uh, CARE Act, CARES Act passed by Congress, which has some impacts on the bankruptcy code, as well as some uh, Massachusetts statutes, which while it doesn't uh, directly affect the code, it's gonna affect a lot of uh, people participating in the bankruptcy court. Um, so first I'll have, I'll ask uh, Carolyn, can you to tell us a little bit about uh, the changes under the CARES Act? Sure. Um, welcome everyone. I wish we could do this in person, but it's nice to have people at least attending um, electronically. So I'm sure most people are aware now that on March 27, 2020, Congress enacted the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act of 2020. And under Section 1113 of that act, there were some specific provisions that affected um, consumer bankruptcy cases particularly. Um, the first such change is that the act excludes payments made under federal law relating to the national emergency declared by the president under the National Emergencies Act with respect to the coronavirus disease from the current monthly income definition set forth in section 10110A of the bankruptcy code. It also amended section 1325B2 of the bankruptcy code by excluding those payments from the calculation of disposable income for purposes of confirming a chapter 13 plan. So in effect, what these amendments mean is if um, the debtor received perhaps stimulus payments during the six months before filing a bankruptcy case, they do not have to disclose those as income on form 22C. They're specifically excluded from um, being included in determining whether a debtor is above or below median income. And under the changes to Section 1325B2, the debtor is not expected to devote that to creditors for determining whether a plan satisfies the best efforts test set forth in Section 1325. What's interesting, though, is the when, act did not... Can I just interject one second? And just as a practical point, uh, even though they're not required to, are you seeing debtors utilizing that in the short term? Um, for some of the plans. I don't know if parties are seeing that. I have not seen it um, expressly like put on Schedule I or the 22C form, but I do think in my confirmed Chapter 13 cases, it's one of the ways the debtors have been able to meet some of their plan payments going forward um, in terms of meeting their obligations under the plan, but not so much in new cases so far. So similar to Social Security or other exempt income even though they're not required, they can use it. So that's, that's right. They can choose to devote it if they want to, but they're allowed to exclude it and it won't make a determination of whether they're above or below median, which I think might help some debtors in chapter seven, especially in determining whether there's a presumption of abuse and in chapter 13, determining whether their applicable commitment period is 36 months or 60 months. Um, what's interesting, though, is the Act did not expressly exclude the monies from the definition of property of the estate in bankruptcy. And as my Chapter 13 practitioners know, there's two tests you need to pass um, when you're trying to confirm a plan, not only the best efforts test, which relates to income, but also the best interest of creditors test and whether or not creditors are receiving more than they would get in a Chapter 7 filing. And if those monies are in a bank account, they are an asset and um, could be available for creditors if they are property of the estate. However, there is some protection out there um, that would allow a debtor to be able to protect that from creditors in the bankruptcy case. 
first um, exemptions. They're pretty generous wildcard exemptions under the state and federal exemption scheme that the debtor may use to exempt the monies. Also, the Office of the United States Trustee had issued a guidance to Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 trustees when the CARES Act was passed, advising that they didn't think it was likely that trustees would administer those payments um, after considering relevant circumstances in connection with the case, such as whether or not it would create a meaningful distribution for creditors. So I think that was guidance to trustees to let them know from the federal level they weren't expecting trustees to pursue those monies. And also the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office had issued some guidance under the CARES Act. And um, their guidance was that they believed that payments under the CARES Act constituted public assistance under Mass General Laws Chapter 235, Section 34, and that they were exempt from seizure, including garnishment and attachment under Chapter 223, Section 42. So I think um, when we're dealing, I think mostly we're dealing with the stimulus payments, and I think most of those have been sent now, but perhaps not all. So the likelihood now, if somebody filed bankruptcy, they're probably not going to have that in their possession has probably been spent, but it may still be relevant for counting towards um, the means test form, and that is specifically excluded. So I don't think the debtors would need to add the monies in when they were doing their um, 22C form. Carolyn. That, yes. Carolyn, um, the, my understanding is that the CARES Act also, the, the, the portion of it that's passed, Change, increase the federal exemption, for homestead exemption? Oh, no, I, I think that's part of the HEROES Act and I don't think that's passed yet. Okay, okay. I think that's the next one that's in line that Cong, um, was passed by the House but not by the Senate. Okay, all right. Which for us, it, it wouldn't affect us because I think it changes it to 100,000 and we're already well above that, but there are a number of states that that would affect, but Mass, it wouldn't affect us. Well, the only way, it, we don't need to get into it, but but uh, the only way it would is that maybe folks would would then t maybe would take the federal exemptions. That's true. So anyway, okay. That's true because usually you do pick the state when you have more equity in your home, and the federal has some other broader that may make it worthwhile if that did pass. That is very true. Um, that uh, that only as as Judge Bailey raised it, just point out that. Um, it, this still is a fluid situation. I'm, I'm always reluctant to talk about pending legislation because between the time it's proposed and the time it's actually entered, um, a lot changes. And um, so, but a reminder to all the, that are attending to keep an eye on what actually finally gets approved by Congress because there may be more changes to how they're dealing with these payments or um, as Judge Bailey said, exemptions, other issues. Bankruptcy often gets tucked into things um, in unexpected ways. I think the big change that we're going to see more going forward under Section 1113 of the CARES Act is the amendment to Section 1329 of the Bankruptcy Code, um, which affects modifications of plans after confirmation. So under the CARES Act, if a plan had been confirmed before the date of enactment, which was March 27th of 2020, a debtor has the right to modify the plan to extend the term plan to up to seven years. And what's interesting about that legislation is it only the debtor 
is able to do that, not a trustee or an unsecured creditor. The rest of 1329 allows the trustee or an unsecured creditor to modify the plan, but this section is expressly limited to the ability of the debtor to be able to do so. But the debtor needs to demonstrate that they've experienced, are experienced or have experienced a material financial hardship due directly or indirectly to COVID-19. So under our local bankruptcy rules, it's in chapter 13, rule 1312, sets forth the procedure for modifying a plan after confirmation. And it requires the debtor to file a motion and also amended schedules I and J if the plan payments are changing. Um, if the debtor is requesting a longer term than the five years due to the COVID-19 hardship, I think it's important to make sure you incorporate into the motion um, what the coronavirus related financial hardship is so that the parties, I think it's very broad. I can't, I think probably everyone has been impacted by COVID. So I think it's a very simple um, standard to meet, but I think it's an important one to reference if you're going to take advantage of that section of the bankruptcy code. Um, that would be very helpful, Carolyn, for the judges as well. And is there a sunset provision on that? It only, it has to be exercised by a certain time frame. Is that correct? That's correct. So all of the sections I just talked about sunset within one year after the date of the enactment of the act, unless it gets extended. So you don't have to rush in right now and file your amended plan. You'll have up to a year to be able to do so if the debtor needs the additional time. But if you don't file it by March 26th of 2021, you'd be foreclosed from doing so unless they extend it. Carol, and I, I, oh, oh, go ahead, Judge Bailey. No, no, if you're following up, Janet, go. I, well, I was only gonna raise a point I heard on another another panel discussing it, it, you know, like everything else, the, the, the fine tuning a year from now, somebody files for seven years and then things change again. Are they are, past the March 26, 21? Are they dealing with a seven year plan? Are they dealing with a five year plan? So those, are, those aren't the issues facing us today, but they are again, things to um, consider. And as you point out, Carolyn, you can wait which may give you an advantage to, to figure out whether it's effective, but you also may have to think the next step, depending on where you are in the plan. Judge Bailey. Uh, Carolyn, you, I, I'm, I'm interested in this concept of, are you affected by COVID-19? Um, and I know it's meant to be broad or it's, it will be construed to be broad and it's anything from having the illness to having a family member that has the illness, but is it broader than that? It's interesting because the act did not define what is going to be considered a material um, financial hardship. And it says due directly or indirectly to COVID. But there's another section of the CARES Act that does set forth a list of um, direct or indirect effects from COVID-19. It deals with the unemployment section and the ability of collecting unemployment. But under that section, they do list a broad um, list of things that would be considered somehow how you were affected by COVID. And it does include things like if a family member became ill, if you had to work, if they lost income or you had to take time off work to care for them. It's very broad. I don't know if this ever became an argument if somebody could go to that section and say, here's yeah. some guidance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Interesting. Yeah. Interestingly, the, the Massachusetts statute that we're going to get into in a moment is broader. It refers to a financial impact. Mission at all. And I think that was all I had, Marcus. So if you, that might be a good time to segue into that section. Perfect. Excellent. Yeah. So um, Sarah Tricot from Murphy and King is going to talk to us about the uh, new uh, moratorium on forbearances under um, the New Massachusetts Act. Yes. Um, so to follow up on that, so this act passed in April and it's currently good through um, August 18th. So it can be extended by the governor. The governor has the authority to extend in 90 day increments, but right now we're looking at August 18th, uh, 2020 uh, for the expiration of this act. And we're gonna call it the moratorium because essentially it'll be the expiration of these moratoriums um, or doomsday, if you will. Um, but it, it entirely could be extended I guess, depending on, you know, what's happening with, you know, the emergency in and of itself. Um, so there are essentially three parts to the act. Um, it's, it's the foreclosure moratorium, the forbearance, and then eviction. So I'm going to talk about, I believe, foreclosure and then forbearance a little bit, or just foreclosure, Marcus. Um, <laughs> So I will talk about foreclosure first. So this is applicable to uh, residential one to four family owner occupied residences. So this is going to exclude your rental properties, second family home, uh, larger apartment complexes. Um, I stress the occupied because vacant premises, even if they are your primary residence can be foreclosed upon. Um, and I stress this specifically in this time because a lot of people have moved out of their primary residences, maybe to their second homes because they don't want to be in the city. So they're staying at their second home on the Cape. If your primary residence is vacant, it is technically ripe for a foreclosure. So that is just something to consider. Um, so the moratorium itself, um, again, applies to residential one to four family and it tolls foreclosures that have already commenced and it also prevents foreclosures from commencing. So no entry, no power to sell under the mortgage, no publication, no share sales, essentially nothing. Um, that's not to say, um, again, that once this is over, your lender or the lender will not institute foreclosure proceedings immediately thereafter since there's no kind of leeway or lag time um, and then I want to reference especially the definition of residential property. So there is a cross-reference in the moratorium to another provision of the Massachusetts General Laws, uh, which specifically says that if your primary residence or if the residential property is used as collateral for a commercial loan, then that property can also be exempt from this um, moratorium. So if somebody has a commercial loan out there and they use their primary residence as cross collateral, um, that property is ripe for foreclosure as well. And I mention this because it's actually happened to a client of one of my colleagues uh, within the last month. So something as well to be wary of. Um, Sarah, uh, question from the audience. Does yeah. the moratorium apply to uh, condo associations? So yes, if it's the person's primary residence. Um, now, if you're talking about the landlord of 
renting out many condominium units, then no, unless again, it's a one to four family, like a triple decker or something that's a condo association, but then the landlord has to live in one of the units. So you get kind of layers of complexity, but yes, it does. It is applicable to condo units provided it is your primary residence. Thank you. Um, so next, um, honestly, the provision on foreclosures is, is fairly cut and dry and fairly vague. I mean, you just cannot, courts cannot accept uh, proceedings. Proceedings are delayed. Uh, and so long as you fall within this definition of residential one to four family owner occupied home, um, then you are, your foreclosure is delayed. Delayed, not forgiven, but delayed. Um, so the next section is on forbearance. So the section we'll talk about maybe in a little bit more detail only because we also kind of looked at the act for federal preemption, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And I think that this section out of all of the sections of the act would be um, the one that would be ripe for federal preemption. Although we don't, I don't necessarily think it would be preempted. Um, it's, it is the section that um, parlays too closely to lending, uh, which is otherwise um, left to basically federal savings banks and national banks. Um, so the forbearance is, again, residential owner-occupied residences applicable to all mortgagees, keeping in mind that any federally backed mortgage or loan will be preempted by the CARES Act. Um, so that is already exempt out, but I believe that the CARES Act um, actually has a more beneficial um, forbearance. It's, I think it's a, almost a full year, 180 days plus reapplication for another 180 days thereafter. Massachusetts forbearance is for 180 days, uh, but you can negotiate with your lender or modify your loan for a different type of loan modification or forbearance. So you don't have to go for the, four, full, for the full 180 days. Um, you go for something less. And my understanding, practically speaking, is lenders are kind of giving a, a laundry list of options for the borrower and they can pick from those options. Um, and almost all of them or the ones that I've spoken to do also include the Massachusetts 180 days permit, um, forbearance. So it does appear currently that federal and state lenders are complying with this 180 day forbearance requirement. Now the payment, there, yeah. um, it, there's a requirement there that it be um, related to COVID in some manner. Are, sure. are lenders um, taking action with that? Are they, what kind of review are they doing? And maybe that's better directed to Marcus, Brad. I can answer a little bit. I think Marcus can probably provide more detail. Sure. From what I understand is it's, it's very vague. And I also understand that people who do not need the forbearance have requested it and are have been granted it. So, um, as as Marcus Lipton um, alluded to, um, the Massachusetts laws are, are, are a lot more broad than, in fact, the CARES Act. So, all you really have to do as as a borrower um, who, in some ways, has been impacted by um, COVID, be it you know being infected yourself, having a family member infected. Um, or, or even having uh, you know hardship from your employer, um, just, just simply making a call to a lender and, and using the magic words, I've been impacted um, 
by COVID um, is pretty much all that lenders at this juncture um, are really seeking to kind of trigger and get the ball rolling on the forbearance component. Um, I think it was Judge Bailey in connection with the preparation that we did for the panel today asked how um, this is this situation is a lot is different than um, 2008 when in the financial crisis there um, lenders are, are a lot more um, working a lot more co cooperatively with borrowers um, I would say um, it's not so much the the adversarial um, relationship between you know the big bad banks and borrowers um, no one really planned for this situation there was no way to plan for this situation and in everyone um, banks included surprisingly enough um, I want to help their borrowers get out of the situations that they may be in so in terms of the forbearance component um, it doesn't matter if you were you know delinquent prior to COVID um, it, it doesn't matter how delinquent you were prior to COVID if you say the magic words um, it's gonna gonna start the forbearance process and, and how the lender moves along in that process. Um, we'll probably you know, touch on it at various points of the presentation today, um, but it might, it might differ from lender to lender. Um, but, but the triggering words um, are pretty, pretty uh, common throughout um, the mortgage like, community. Are they requiring written notice or it sounds like, as you indicated, they, a telephone would be enough? It's really just a telephone. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the lenders that I work with pretty regularly, um, when everything started and the legislation was being being promulgated, um, they on their websites they adopted special pages for COVID related materials and in various links. So it's not necessarily a phone call. You know, some of the lenders that I deal with, I know you can, you know, check a box and on on a web page and hit submit, and that'll start the process. Um, but it's a simple phone call. It's not. Uh, and, and the laws don't require, you know, the submission of packages and financials and all that stuff that would be typical of a loss mitigation loan modification application. Um, a simple phone call um, gets gets it started for you. Sounds like the forbearance part is pretty easy to initiate. Uh, what happens when the forbearance is over? And that's that's the big question. Um, that we're starting to deal with now because um, a lot of these 180 day forbearances that um, started in March and, and April are, are coming to a close. Um, and that's, that's where we're, uh, what we're trying to figure out. Um, the um, state legislation requires the, um, the foreborn arrearage to be moved to the back of the loan, but there's also other options um, as well um, for some borrowers that might not be, um, favorable or preferable. Um, so they might seek to work with lenders um, to address the forborn arrears in, in different manners. Um, I know a lot of the, the forbearance or notices of forbearance that I've filed before the court, um, a lot of our clients have language in there um, indicating that um, the borrower will work with the lender um, to, to address those arrears in, in any way appropriate. Um, so it might ultimately be submitting a loan modification application and going through that process. Um, it might be negotiating a six month or nine month stipulation to cure those arrears. It might be um, speaking with Carolyn and working on amending um, a, a plan to include the post-petition arrearage. It's a matter of the borrower um, working with their counsel and determining what is the most advantageous 
um, as it presently stands, um, the rolling of the arrears to the back of the loan, um, capitalizing uh, the, uh, the, uh, the foreborn arrears, I should say, um, to the back of the loan is, is incorporated in as, as a default provision, um, for lack of better terminology. Um, but there are other options there too, and it's a matter of borrowers working with their attorneys and um, attorneys working collaboratively with um, attorneys for mortgages and, and figuring out what is the, the best on a case-by-case -case basis. And I just want to add, as you alluded to, and many of the attendees may be aware, um, the court has adopted a standing order 2020-7. If it's a straight forbearance in accordance with the statute, um, whether it's the CARES Act or the state statute, um, the standing order provides you're not re required to file the loan modification, but the court does ask you to file a notice. We have seen it in a, in a number of fashions, um, but a reminder that when you get to that end, if you're not taking the default provision, um, which is to tack it on to the end and you're modifying the loan, then I believe the court will expect you to, to proceed with the procedures for a loan modification. Okay. So suppose a, a borrower just wants their payments added to the end and the mortgage company says, uh, we don't want to offer that, that option. Um, can, can, does the Massachusetts law prevail there? Uh, I, I would say yes, it does currently, um, but but uh, that doesn't mean that somebody, meaning a federal bank or national bank, can't bring a claim um, for preemption. So in this instance, this act was passed for consumer protection purposes. Um, consumer state consumer financial laws are generally not preempted. They're specific um, elements essentially in order for a state consumer financial law to be preempted by federal law. Uh, and we, if we could also say that this moratorium on foreclosures and the forbearance is a state debt collection remedy, then we would also be out of the realm of um, preemption. So after the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, we're in conflict preemption versus the HOLA, um, which prior to about 2010, uh, the Homeowner, Homeowners Loan Act uh, had field preemption for all lending. And that was very, very broad brush. So a lot of preemption cases were being brought under the Homeowner Loan, Homeowners Loan Act. Um, now they would likely be brought under the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, again, these would be applying to mortgages uh, originated after 2010 which are likely most, if not all, of the mortgages that we're dealing with now. I think the lifespan of a mortgage is usually average three to five years. Um, so I would say no, but that it's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis. And whether or not what is in this act actually um, qualifies, I guess, as being... Um, credit related documents or just incidentally affecting the lending powers, which as of right now, in my opinion, it, it likely would only incidentally affect the lending powers. The lender is still going to get repaid at the end of this. Um, there is no, 
as we know, just no credit check. It's essentially you call <coughs> and say, I need to forbear. Please give me my forbearance. I've had, uh, I've been impacted by COVID. There's no, you know, qualifications for credit check. Um, and it doesn't change the terms. Amortization stays the same. But again, there is case law out there that says um, a forbearance is a loan modification. So if we take that point of view and we say a forbearance is a loan modification, then we are well within this realm of uh, lending and affecting lending or the lender's ability to service and process their loans. So, Sarah, have, have we seen any of this actual litigation? Has the preemption argument been raised in any court that we see in Massachusetts yet? Not as of yet. Um, not as of yet. And honestly, I think Marcus Pratt raised this as lenders are complying because um, everybody's kind of playing nice in the sandbox right now. But I think that's all fine and good until maybe August 18th. But if this extends out, I, I really don't know. Um, you know, lenders, again, I think after the whole financial crisis in 2008, 2009, lenders don't want the bad press. Uh, local lenders and national banks do not want the bad press. Um, they just want to grant the forbearance. Um, banks are doing well right now on top of that. Um, refinances, interest rates are really low. People are refinancing at crazy rates. So banks are doing decently well. So it, I think given the climate, it's unlikely to happen. But again, it's hard to say. It depends on how long this actual act and moratorium lasts, I would say. Yeah, to, I, you know, I, I know Marcus Pratt and I talked about this um, in the prep session. He mentioned it already, the differences between today and 2009 and a, a major difference between then and now that will affect the overhang, I think, across the board as we move forward past August, is that everybody seems to have equity. And yeah. back in 09, nobody had equity. I mean, nobody that, that we saw. Carolyn, you, I'm sure you could echo that. Um, it, it, was, it, was the, it was the rare case where, there was, uh, where you were dealing uh, with that. Now it's, it seems to be almost the other shoe was on the other foot. Now, will that continue um, given the economic crisis that we're in? I don't know. I think almost every case back then had a second mortgage strip and we seldom see that now. That's right, that's right. A bank can be a lot friendlier when they feel like they've got 50, 60, $70,000 in equity uh, sitting there, so. Ultimately, they just wanna get paid. Right. Um, and, and I mean, it comes, it's, that sounds easy enough, you know, and simple enough, but surprising, surprising enough to some. Ultimately, you know, they just wanna get paid. And at least, you know, across the client base that I have, um, they're, they're willing to work with borrowers, at least right now. Uh, it could change, you know, when things loosen up um, from a regulatory standpoint, but they, they just want to work with borrowers to ultimately get paid themselves. And, you know, that'll, that'll benefit borrowers, you know, in terms of being able to keep their homes and, and things along those lines. So Marcus, during, after the last uh, crisis, uh, the, the net present value test was a big part of the loan modifications in determining, you know, whether the creditor was getting more at foreclosure than they would at a, a loan modif or by giving a loan modification. And it seems now with all the equity, 
foreclosure would be the fastest route to full payment. Is there a, a different um, evaluation standards? Uh, no, I mean, not that I know of. I think it's too early to tell at this point. Um, you know, come come the end of August, I, I might be able to answer that differently for you. Um, once, you know, things start to ramp up and, um, you know, lenders are going to have to make some difficult decisions across the board um, in terms of proceeding with foreclosures or, like you said, you know, allowing um, modifications and things along those lines. So um, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know if anyone has an answer right now. Um, it, it'll be time will tell. All right. Uh, maybe this is a good segue to uh, talk about the moratorium on evictions. Jacob's going to fill us in on that. Thanks, Marcus. Um, of course, I unmuted you as soon as my printer started, so excuse the noise. Uh, so on, uh, Massachusetts is currently in a state of emergency, as you know, and the eviction moratorium is uh, started on April 20th. And it states uh, two things, um, that um, it lasts, the moratorium at, lasts until uh, midnight on August 18th of 2020, uh, or um, 45 days after the governor lifts the state of emergency. And uh, to my best of my knowledge, the state of emergency has not been lifted. And so I'm going with the, or I don't know if I expect it to be lifted, the state's obviously reopening. We're going through our different phases of various businesses opening now. But um, August 18th uh, is the date. So what does August 18th mean? Um, uh, it means that you cannot uh, evict, um, you cannot have a non-essential eviction. Uh, a non-essential eviction is something that, uh, for example, eviction for non-payment, uh, a no-fault eviction, if you want to, uh, evict someone because you want to um, renovate the unit, you want to um, re-rent it for market rate, you can't do it. Uh, and uh, even, and it's not just, it's not just the summary process, the act of find, filing the complaint itself. For example, um, and I've fielded a number of calls on this for landlords who haven't received rent in the past couple of months and Everyone, everyone, everyone gets it. I mean, of course, you haven't been paid. Uh, you want to get paid. Um, but you can't send a, a notice to quit until uh, August 18th either. And um, which means that, that uh, not only can you not file uh, a summary process complaint in, in, the, in the district court or the housing court, is you can't even terminate tenancy. So uh, if, if uh, it's a, it's a very comprehensive sweeping um, uh, declaration. And um, they've even, uh, if, uh, if you try to sue, they've said that they'll turn away any landlord that appears to try to file suit. No one can get defaulted. Um, so if the case was pending, they, they, um, uh, a tenant cannot be defaulted for not appearing. And um, obviously there's no in Massachusetts, you can't do a physical lockout. You can't just change the locks, uh, which is, that wasn't okay anyway, but now you certainly can't do that because you're frustrated if you're not getting rent. Um, and you cannot report someone on a um, credit report for being late uh, because, of the, uh, because of the state of emergency. 
Um, the state of emergency, um, of course, because of the uh, sweeping powers that the governor has can also be extended. And so there's nothing to say that August 18th um, is actually um, the final date um, because one of the, um, the impetus for the eviction moratorium itself was quite obviously that there is going to be a, um, a uh, landslide, an epidemic of people who wouldn't have places to live. And so if the governor um, decides that, um, that the state has not opened up enough yet, or if the conditions are similar, um, when August comes around, you can easily extend that state of emergency and extend the moratorium to, um, to protect just hundreds of thousands of people from being without a place to live. Jacob, does it apply to uh, commercial leases or only residential? Oh man. You got me. It's only, uh, I can jump in. It's only residential, but it also applies to a small business premises unit. Thank um, you so yeah. So, I mean, in that instance, you think of your, you know, small restaurant or small retail, but not chain. So it's got to be under 150 employees and the, the um, company itself can't be owned or controlled by a multinational, multi-state, I believe, or um, or uh, publicly traded. So we're really talking about what you categorically think of as a small business. Um, caveat to that is if the small business was in arrears or defaulted under the lease terms prior to the COVID emergency, um, any eviction that had commenced, or if you, if you, even if it had not commenced, if it could have been evicted back then, they can be evicted now. So if they were defaulting back in beginning of March, they can be evicted now. That only applies to the small business correct. piece. Is that correct, Sarah? That so an individual could have been in arrears and still, um, and, and Jacob, it applies regardless of the size of the landlord, correct? That's correct. So, because I'm sure that um, the debtor council on the phone, and I know uh, on the panel, see frequently chapter 11, chapter 13 debtors have rental income as part of their income. Um, have you seen uh, um, considerable issues with that in light of what's going on and their ability to continue to move forward? Oh, um, Judge, you mean my clients? I mean, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's an enormous uh, uh, issue because you don't have if you fall behind on plan payments, um, uh, your case can get dismissed. And um, and with respect, Carolyn, I've noticed that those motions to dismiss have started to come in, which we expect. Um, I know that there's, uh, you know, you could always ask to possibly. Um, uh, suspend those payments. So that's an option for some, but yes, definitely the rental income that's coming in is necessary for the chapter 13 reorganization and that money in many cases is not coming in. Okay. Marcus, if I just, just want to make one more point, which I found, um, I found interesting is that in Massachusetts, um, if you do landlord or tenant work, the, um, the law surrounding, um, 
whether you can, uh, the ways you can use your security deposit is very, very technical. And you have to put it in a separate interest bearing account. You've got to, um, uh, you have to document it extensively. And if you don't, it's 93A trouble damages, attorney's fees and all that. So uh, one of the consequences from this eviction moratorium is that they, there is now a similar provision. It's not exactly the same, but there's a very technical way. And I, uh, I can't, I can't explain it that well because it's so long. It's just the fact that last month's rent is now being treated similarly to the way security deposits were being treated before. So if your tenant is, is delinquent, you can't use the last month's rent to cover like a month of delinquency because there's an eviction moratorium and last month's rent is for the last month that they live there. It's not for these months that they've now missed because of the moratorium. So uh, landlords are saying, well, I haven't been paid in a few months. At least I've got last, last month's rent to, to, um, to tide me over. It's not the case. And don't treat it like that because you're just going to open yourself up to possibly 93A liability. One, one interesting thing about the statute is it specifically states that it's not excusing the payment of rent. So when this is over, there's a lot, there's going to be a lot of tenants out there who have large bills to their landlord. Right. Nobody knows how that's going to be addressed, though, just yet, right? There's yes. no uh, parents to put it at the end of the lease payments or anything like that. Right, right. Um, of course, once once the state of emergency is lifted, once the moratorium is over, then you would, if you're evicting for non-payment, you would file a summary process complaint, and then there in the accounting, at that point, is it acceptable to use last month's rent? towards the balance? That's a question I don't know. But that's a question that landlords have, have not had to really face before. It's, 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 it's up there now with security deposits, sort of just another thing. Yeah. Do you see many plans to deal with rental arrears? I don't see them very often. Not very often at all. I wouldn't be surprised to see more of them coming up when, when this expires. What if I, uh, Jacob and, and uh, Sarah, I don't know if when you, when you had a chance to look at this eviction provision, <clears throat> um, something that would have surprised me um, early on doesn't surprise me now, and that is that there might be a, a reimposition of the emergency, you know, so that the governor may say, you know, we're out of the woods, it's over and then in three months reimpose it. Is the statute broad enough to self-effect? Um, so come back into place? Judge, I, um, so to your specific question, I, 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 um, I would say that that is gonna be dependent on the sweeping powers of the governor. And um, there was a, there was a, a piece, uh, I believe it was about a week ago in the Globe that's, sort of spoke to this about how there's his um, authority to enact a state of emergency. For example, when the Columbia gas thing happened back in 2018, that state of emergency is still in effect for those towns, Andover and um, uh, I think Lawrence. And so if he wants to reimpose it, um, I, I would think he has the power to do so. And so that's definitely a possibility. Well, he definitely has the power to do, to do so. The question is to me whether or not that would uh, whether the statute would then spring back into life and, and the moratorium would be uh, reimposed. That... 
I would just say I would imagine that that's that I would imagine that would be um, that would be okay, but I'm certainly not the authority on that. Yeah, I just want to make one comment too. So I, I agree with Jacob. I don't think the the act is clear. Um, there's nothing about what happens if you know all of the timelines expire. I mean, presumably if all of the timelines do expire and reach the end, the act is done. But the governor is granted very large authority under the act to continue to extend. Um, I just I just wouldn't be surprised if he just keeps extending on 90-day increments, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, but I just want to make one comment. Um, tenants as well as borrowers need to have an affirmative act here. So tenants do need to, within 30 days of a missed rental payment, um, the Executive Office of Housing and Economic Development have um, come out with a form. So a form needs to be provided to the landlord saying, I missed rent. Uh, within the 30 days of that missed rental uh, amount and explain that it was a, a COVID uh, related impact and reason why they missed rent. So it's not just a, a broad brush, you know, oh, I'm 60 days in arrears at this point. Uh, by the way, I missed rent. Technically speaking, the verbiage in the act says no later than 30 days after rent would otherwise be due. The tenant needs to notify using the documentation provided. So. But if the tenant doesn't do that, that doesn't open the door to the can't housing board necessarily, does it? Can't evict them. So, and, and, and Sarah and Jacob, is this the same time frame as when we were talking about the foreclosure? So do you have to make the request within that same time frame? Um, I think the foreclosure, the, was it the forbearance request has to be made before August 18th now, assuming no extension. Correct. There, there's no explicit, so in the forbearance section, it's explicitly stated that okay. the forbearance request needs to occur during this time. I don't believe there's explicit language similar to that. Uh, the only time frame requirement is this 30 days from Miss Rental. So, you know, if they paid for May and June, but now can't pay July or can't pay August, and then we're getting close to, I guess, when the act would otherwise expire. So theoretically, right. if you miss August 1 and it expires August 18th, you could technically notify after the act has expired and still within that 30 days. So. Uh, we had an audience question for the judges. Uh, will the bankruptcy court entertain a motion for relief despite the CARES Act or the moratorium? Yes, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to do with it? That's what they really want to know. <laughs> that, yeah, I think the, the better question is, does, does the moratorium or the CARES Act affect the analysis of, of a motion? Well, I can tell you from my perspective, and again, I think we might have talked about this in the prep session, is that, you know, what people are seeking, what, a, what the lender is seeking with a motion for relief from stay is the right to go exercise their state law remedies. Their state law remedies are limited, you know, by the, by the CARES Act, well, that, or their other remedies, state law or federal law remedies. Um, and uh, so, uh, the argument could be and has been already 
there's no cause to allow relief from stay because they can't do anything with it. They can't foreclose. <clears throat> but that doesn't, generally that doesn't carry the day in, in my mind. Um, it might be a reason that it's not, it may not be immediately useful to the lender, um, but, but if there's cause independent of, of that, um, they just have the right to go exercise their state law remedies, <clears throat> limited as they are. I, I, I echo that. Um, if you looked at my docket on any given chapter 13 day, there's still plenty of motions for relief. Um, and as, is, as happened before, often they're resolved between the parties. Um, but the other thing that I am seeing is I am often not required to make that decision because either in response or after the motion, uh, it, it separately, the debtors have made the request for forbearance. Um, and when that occurs, I often, it, you know, the hearings are continued or the matters are taken off. Um, so um, similar to Judge Bailey, although of course I think it depends on the particular circumstances, I haven't had yet heard an argument why this, this act would preclude me from granting relief from stay, but it sometimes has a play in terms of um, timing and issues, uh, for example, you know, whether I can, I might be more inclined to continue it again because the harm to the to the lender, particularly if there's equity, as Judge Judge Bailey indicated, is well you can't you can't go immediately anyways. But those are all factor fact specific and um, um, consider on the case. But I think more frequently what we see, and I'm sure Judge Bailey too, is that the debtor's bar has been pretty savvy about asserting their right, um, particularly as time has passed. I think when it first got enacted, it happened less frequently. Um, and, and so we are seeing more of that. Well, the, and don't, don't miss that, you know, our, our mortgagee bar is pretty creative. And so the arguments I've been hearing is fr from them, including those on this panel, um, well, you can grant relief from stay, Judge. We can't do anything with it anyway, so you might as well grant us relief from stay. Uh, we're not going to be able to move forward with this. So it, it's it, it's sort of a double-edged sword, I guess. The argument can be cut both I agree. Ways. I heard one today. Well, you know, grant relief from stay, and by the time you sell the property, um, we're in a moratorium anyway. So, um, I would certainly... From uh, from a mortgagees mortgagees council perspective, definitely echo what uh, Judge Bostwick said in terms of uh, resolution. These uh, forbearance type of agreements are certainly um, precluding a lot of motion for relief from being filed, and, and also assisting with the settlement of many others. Um, so it's it's certainly important um, for for debtors and their council to be proactive um, in this environment. Um, that's you know the best I could say, and of course be patient with my clients too. I would think too, um, and and I'm not that far removed from the practice of law, so I know that clients um, have their own. It's it, sometimes they hear what they want to hear, but I, I, I see often that the motions for relief are an occasion, uh, not simply to defer it to the back end to ensure that the client is able to, um, because once 
out of sight, out of mind. Um, and so I think that that council are doing a good job of trying to strike the right balance between giving the client some breathing room and making sure that it's still going to be um, feasible for the client to address those arrears at some later point. That's a, I mean, that's a really good point. A mortgage that's, you know, considerably in arrears prior to, to March, you know, a th- 180 forbearance is just going to exacerbate the problem after it expires. So I, I think it's a, a good consideration to make for sure. Um, and, and a consideration I think a lot of attorneys are making. I, I think that is going to be the, you know, the, the issues now are very different from what we're going to see in the fall or next year for exactly that reason. Um, there are going to be many people who may not have come to council yet and they're already um, six months behind or wherever, add another 180 days worth of forbearance, and they still may not have gotten the income back. It may be longer, and it's going to be much harder for them um, under the current laws um, to try and restructure. I think the hook has just arrived. <laughs> the hook has <laughs> arrived. Because <laughs> here we are out of time to everyone for uh, what I thought was a really great panel. I uh, hope everybody got something out of it, and uh, we will pass it back over to Kate Kirkshank to introduce our next panel. Thanks, Marcus, and thanks, thanks, Marcus. To, thanks to all the panelists. That was a really interesting and informative presentation, so really enjoyed it. Thank you for all, all your work on it, too. Um, so now I'm going to turn the proceedings over to David Mawinney of Bowditch and Dewey, and he's going to uh, mediate our panel on small the Small Business Reorganization Act. So, uh, David, you want to start? Yes. Hello, everybody. Thank you uh, very much, Kate. Um, let me just pop this up here on the screen. Um, so, the uh, Small Business Reorganization Act, as the uh, as the economy recovers. Um, Subchapter 5 will likely play a big role in helping small businesses to get back on their feet. And so Subchapter 5 just turned four months old last week, and we thought it was an opportune time to take a look at the SBRA in action. So I'm very privileged to be joined today by uh, judges uh, Melvin Hoffman and Christopher Panos, um, of the bankruptcy court here in Massachusetts. Uh, Steve Weiss, um, who is a practicing subchapter five trustee and William Harrington from the US trustees office. Today, we have a program for you in three parts. We're going to start again, if some of you haven't had it yet with a overview of the subchapter five um, provisions in chapter 11. We're then going to cover the role of the subchapter five trustee, and it is an evolving role. And then the the main portion of the program will be to review some of the cases that have come down so far to date. So um, without further ado, I would like to turn it over to to Bill Harrington, who's going to do an overview of the act. Thank you, David. I, and, and like the judges, I have to give my standard DOJ caveat that anything I say today is 
simply the opinion of Bill Harrington and not policies or procedures of the Department of Justice or the Office of the United States Trustee. And a personal caveat that any mistakes I make with respect to the law today can't be used against any of my trial attorneys uh, when they're appearing in court on another date. Um, so as David said, before we get to sort of the meat of the presentation of how the act has worked in practice, I'm going to give a very brief overview. Uh, I think if anyone has previously participated in an SBRA overview, um, you know, those typically take an hour to an hour and a half. I'm gonna be doing the speed dating version of that today. I'm gonna to try to do it in eight minutes. Um, and so I've been told I have eight minutes to do it. So I will be giving you the speed dating version of the SBRA uh, and background highlights. Um, so quickly, I'm gonna cover three things. Uh, the sort of purpose of the legislation, you know, why we have it, um, why it was enacted. Um, two, who is, who's eligible to elect subchapter five. And then I'm gonna hit a few of the highlights uh, just to give you a flavor of the legislation if you have not attended um, and previously an SBRA presentation. So generally the consensus was that the traditional small business provisions of the code were not working for small business debtors. And in fact, small business debtors were not filing chapter 11 because they didn't work. It was too expensive. Um, the provisions, they were found to be cumbersome and it would take a long time to get through the process and it would foster a lot of litigation if you did get to confirmation of the process. Um, there was a concern that owners of closely held companies really couldn't access the process because um, they were um, shout out of sort of post-confirmation reorganized debtors by the absolute priority rule. Uh, there were concerns that creditors may have a blocking position when it came to confirmation and to get over that blocking position would require very expensive litigation. And so the SBRA was enacted to attempt to deal with all of those issues. Um, and as many of you know, the act went effective February 19th, 2020. So as David said, we've got four months of history, not a long time, um, not a lot of not a huge sample of cases have filed yet. Uh, we're in the low teens in, in Region 1. With respect to case filings, there's about 500 cases that have filed around the country. Um, so there's not a huge sample size yet, but we do have some written opinions uh, and we do have things to talk about in the first four months of the Act. But what was the purpose of it? Um, so its primary purpose was intended to promote consensual plans. It provided a greater possibility of the confirmation of non-concessional plans because it limited and reduced some of the requirements for getting through confirmation and therefore it would give debtors some additional leverage when negotiating with their creditors to get to a consensual plan. Um, and so the purpose was to try to get these cases into consensual plans. Uh, it provided some additional benefits for individual small business debtors and when I talk about eligibility I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, it streamlined the procedures for getting through a Chapter 11 case. And hopefully that streamlining of some of the procedures will help reduce the cost, it will help reduce some of the administrative costs associated. And there were some specific provisions put in to actually assist in reducing some of the administrative costs. On the flip side, it has tighter timelines. Um, so you really have to be ready when you go into these cases because these cases move very quickly. The good news is creditors will be entitled to faster recoveries because of these tighter 
timelines. It also provides the assistance of a sub chapter five trustee. And Steve's gonna talk about the duties and responsibilities of sub chapter five trustee. Um, but you should not be fooled into thinking this is a typical chapter 11 trustee. This is an entirely new creature. Uh, this is not an operational trustee. This trustee does not take over the case uh, and doesn't move and supplant the management of the debtor. This is a consulting trustee whose primary duty is to assist in the facilitation and development of a consensual plan. And Steve will talk about their other duties later, but this is something completely new. I think I've said a couple times, this is not your grandmother's trustee. This is something that is very different uh, that when, than what we've seen in the past. Next slide, please. Um, this is a voluntary election. So if you want to be a sub chapter five debtor, you must elect to do so. If you don't make the election to be a sub chapter five debtor and you still meet the requirements of a small business debtor under the definition of small business debtor, you would just proceed in your chapter 11 case under the traditional small business provisions. So you must make the election, it is voluntary. And so if you are going to make the election, you should be ready for these tighter timelines and the case to proceed very quickly. Um, who is going, who's eligible to be a subchapter five debtor? So the first requirement is you have to be a person engaged in commercial or business activity. Note that that's a person, so that can include individuals and corporations. And so individuals can be subchapter five debtors as long as they are engaged in commercial or business activity. Uh, we already have a written decision out on at least to give us some indication of what it means to be a person engaged in commercial or business activity. And we will talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. Uh, there are debt limits to filing a small, to being a small business debtor. And you have to have non-contingent liquidated non-insider debt of less than $2.7 million. And that's under the original legislation. The CARES Act, which Carolyn mentioned um, in her presentation previously, increased that debt limit to $7.5 million. Although that has a sunset provision, that's only an increase for one year at this point. Um, I think a lot of people would like to see that be a permanent increase. But as of this point, that $7.5 million increase under the CARES Act has a one-year sunset on that. Um, to put those numbers in perspective, under the $2.7 million let debt limit, um, I've heard statistics that that represented somewhere between 35% to 40% of chapter 11 cases historically. And at the $7.5 million limit, that represents somewhere between 75 and 80% of historic chapter 11 filings. So it can be a significant number of the cases that file that can now meet the debt limit. Bill, uh, can, I, other... Bill can I just um, interject one point? If, I, if I'm correct about this, originally you had to be, you had to be a small business debtor to be able to elect subchapter five. With this amendment, if I understand correctly, now they didn't amend the ceiling for small business debtors. It's still 2.7 million. So it's possible now that a debtor can qualify for subchapter five, but not be a small business debtor, right? You'd still have to meet the other requirements of being a small business debtor, but yes, that the debt limit applies simply to the subchapter five. The increase in the debt limit applies to subchapter five debtors, 
not the other traditional small business debtors. Thank you. Um, one of the other requirements is at least 50% of your debt must have arisen from commercial or business activities. Uh, if you have joint debtors, if you have affiliated cases, you can file as joint debtors as long as the aggregate debt for all of the affiliates is below the debt limit. Um, who cannot be a subchapter five debtor? Single asset real estate cases do not qualify for subchapter five and public companies can't file for subchapter five. Uh, next slide, please. I'm gonna quickly talk about some of the highlights of subchapter five. Um, Earlier I said that a subchapter five trustee is appointed in every case. Um, that subchapter five trustee I said was a consulting trustee. So that means the debtor remains a debtor in possession. The debtor continues to operate their business. The subchapter five trustee does not come in and operate their business. The debtor's lawyer still provides all of the legal advice to the client or to the debtor. Uh, the debtor's lawyer is still going to take all actions on behalf of the debtor in the bankruptcy case, the debtor's lawyer is gonna file the motions, the debtor's lawyer is going to represent the debtor in the bankruptcy case. So the subchapter five trustee does not supplant the debtor, the debtor remains in possession. I talked earlier about some of the benefits that would reduce costs. One of them is there's no creditors committee unless the court orders otherwise for a cause in a subchapter five case. So you're saved the administrative expense of a creditors committee. There's no disclosure statement required in a subchapter five case. Now, the one caveat to that is some of the information that traditionally would be in a disclosure statement has to be put in the plan, but you don't have to file a separate disclosure statement. You do have to include in your plan a brief history of the debtor. You have to provide a liquidation analysis and you have to provide projections in your plan, but you don't, those things would typically be in a separate document in a disclosure statement. You don't have a disclosure statement you have to file here. Um, only the debtor may propose or modify a plan. So creditors cannot file a plan in a subchapter five case, only, nor can the trustee. Um, only the debtor may propose or modify a plan. Uh, there's no United States trustee fees. Um, someone once said to me, this must be a really important legislation because the U.S. trustee is out speaking and uh, promoting this legislation, but yet they're not getting paid. Um, so when else do you see a lawyer promoting legislation when they're not getting paid? Uh, so no United States trustee fees in these cases. Administrative expenses um, may be paid over time in subchapter five cases, and they may be paid through the plan. They don't have to be paid on the effective date. So that's another benefit uh, to the debtors of, sub, of electing subchapter five. Next slide, please. Um, one of the big benefits of subchapter five is the confirmation requirements are modified. Uh, you really need to review the confirmation requirements because there are significant benefits um, and there's certain of the requirements have been modified to make it easier to confirm a plan. Uh, yeah, the, the legislation was intended to promote consensual plans, but one of the ways they did that was they lowered the bar on the requirements for non-consensual cram down plans uh, so the debtors would have additional leverage when, when negotiating with their creditors. So in a non-consensual cram down plan, it's not required that you have an accepting impaired class. So no accepting impaired class is required to get through confirmation. 
the absolute priority rule does not apply. Um, and so you don't have to comply with the absolute priority rule. Now, on the flip side or the trade-off for that is your plan must be fair and equitable to all creditors and you must commit all of your projected disposable income in a non-consensual cram down plan for at least three years and not more than five years. Um, projected disposable income has a new definition under subchapter five. So make sure you read the def definition of projected disposable income. It's not the same as you may have seen in other chapters of the bankruptcy code. Um, and very important provision and benefit of subchapter five is that an individual debtor may cram down their mortgage on a principal residence if the loan proceeds were used primarily for business purposes. So if you have a you know, small business, a landscaper or a contractor who took a second mortgage um, and used it for business purposes to buy business equipment, you'd be able to cram down that mortgage. Um, so that's a huge benefit of subchapter five. Now on the flip side, these cases are designed to move very quickly. And so if you are representing a subchapter five debtor, you have to be prepared. And so these cases are streamlined. And so I think a takeaway is these tighter timelines, you must have your ducks in a row um, if you are going to take on one of these cases. And you have to make sure your debtor is aware or your client is aware that they must have their documents ready because these cases will move fast. Uh, like other small business cases, on the petition date, you have to file your balance sheet, a statement of operations, cash flow statement, and your most recent filed federal tax return or you have to file an affidavit saying you don't have any of that information. Um, schedules in these cases have to be filed within 14 days of the petition date, and there's a limitation on how far that can be extended. It can only be extended for 30 days. It's required that there be a mandatory court status conference in these cases within 60 days of the petition date. At that status conference, the debtor should be prepared to explain to the court what efforts it's made to um, negotiate a consensual plan with its creditors. And 14 days prior to that status conference, the debtor has to file a status conference report um, indicating you know, efforts it's made to, to negotiate a consensual plan. The plan must be filed in 90 days after the petition date. Now there is no, there is no limit on when confirmation has to occur, like a traditional small business case. So you just have to get the plan on file, but you have to do that in the first 90 days of the case. And so um, it's very tight deadlines. These cases move very fast and you really do have to be prepared because your trustee is going to wanna see your documents. Um, and it's in, I think it's anticipated that if a trustee participates in the status conference and says, you didn't file any of your documents and you didn't, you didn't, you know, actively cooperate with the trustee that you're going to be not in a good place to get to confirmation within 90 days. And so with that, I will turn it over to Steve to talk about the role of the trustee. Good afternoon, everybody. And thank you, Bill. Um, and since the judges are making their caveats and disclaimers and the U.S. trustee is making his disclaimer about not being uh, held accountable, uh, I need to do the same thing. Uh, as everybody knows, this is very early in the program. Uh, I think there are only three small, uh, uh, some chapter five cases in Massachusetts. I am the uh, trustee in one of them. 
Um, so whatever I say about my role here uh, certainly isn't binding on the judges. It isn't binding on the U.S. trustee. It isn't binding on my colleagues on the panel. And frankly, I don't even think it should be binding on me just yet. Um, so what is exactly is my role in the case? Uh, as, uh, as Bill said, it, on a larger level, it's to be a consultant. Right? There are some statutory duties. Uh, first of all, it's interesting to compare this to what I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, as Bill said, I'm not a traditional operating Chapter 11 trustee. I don't take possession of the business. I'm not writing checks. I'm not doing, I'm not doing all of those things. I don't have the authority to file a plan. Uh, I'm certainly not debtor's counsel. I'm not the advocate for the debtor. Uh, I'm not a Chapter 7 trustee. I'm not in the process of taking, taking control of the, the business assets and liquidating them. Uh, I'm not really, uh, I don't think, I may be supplanting the creditors committee in some small sense, but I'm not, certainly not uh, creditors committee counsel. Uh, I think on a, a bigger picture basis, the closest analogy I think I can need that I personally come to is that this is analogous to being a chapter 12 trustee, either farm, farms or fishermen. Uh, and I know in Massachusetts, those cases are even more rare than subchapter five trustee cases. Uh, but my role as a, as a chapter 12 trustee in the cases where I've been appointed in that context over the last 20 or so years is more engaged than a chapter uh, 13 trustee usually is in the cases. I do get more involved in trying to make sure that, uh, that I know what's going on in the case and that's progressing and that the debtor, the debtor and debtor's counsel do what they are supposed to be doing when they're supposed to be doing it, uh, but not as engaged as a chapter 11 trustee and not as in, in control. So there are some specific duties uh, that are laid out in section 1183 uh, B of the, of subchapter five. Uh, I, I have to account for property that's, uh, that's received by me. I, I have the right, right to object to proofs of claim. I can oppose the discharge uh, of the debtors, uh, certainly furnish information to parties in interest in it if requested, uh, and be accountable for all money that I get, and then file a final account at the end of that. Uh, I also have to appear, uh, to be available to appear and heard at hearings, including uh, the status conference, in any hearings on sales of property, on confirmation, uh, or on valuations of property. I, I will tell you also that in the cases that, uh, the case that I've been involved in, uh, I also participated in the initial debtor, debtor interview uh, that the U.S. trustee co conducts in every case. Uh, and I also uh, participated in the, uh, in the 341 meeting, the formal 341 meeting. Uh, I think Technically, it was being run by the U.S. trustee, but I was certainly an active uh, participant in that. Participant in that, um, and then uh, I'm, I am one of the goals that's new is let me see if I can get the words exactly right. I am to facilitate the development of a consensual plan of reorganization, um, and. and if I told you I knew exactly what facilitate the development of a consensual plan of reorganization was going to entail just yet, uh, I, I'd, I'd be overstating the case. Uh, it, should I be, exactly what does facilitate mean? Uh, should I be contacting creditors uh, about the plan? Uh, should I be uh, objecting to claims? Should I be uh, objecting to exemptions? There was uh, on the National Association of Bankruptcy Trustees, uh, uh, in email listserv, one of my colleagues in another state asked the following question this, this morning, 
the debtor had clearly taken exemptions that were uh, far beyond what he or she was able to take. And should the trustee be objecting to those exemptions? Uh, is that consistent with facilitating the development of a consensual plan of reorganization? Um, it does, nowhere in the, in the code does it say that the trustee uh, has to uh, object to exemptions. I, my view of it is I, I, I would come down on the side of objecting um, because as part of the liquidation analysis, the allowable exemptions, uh, the allowable exemptions are, are going to come into play. Steve, uh, uh, we had a, sorry to interrupt, but we actually had a, a question about um, a duty of care. Is there a duty of care that you can locate in the subchapter five? For for the for the trustee? For the trustee. <laughs> question. <laughs> um, not that I've been able to find yet. Uh, and I, I suppose I'll find out whether I've satisfied my duty of care after a few cases come along and, and the judges uh, tell me whether or not I've, I've satisfied that, that duty. Um, and that gets me towards uh, the, what I think one of the next informal duties is, actually, which is to also, I don't want to say be the ear, eyes and ears of the court on the progress of the case. Uh, and I, I don't want to talk about cases, specific cases too much, uh, but for instance, in the case uh, wherever I'm trustee right now, the plan just got filed uh, and, and the court has scheduled a, sca a, a, a status conference on the plan and has asked me to weigh in on my thoughts about confirmability. Um, I think that's one of the roles. Uh, in terms, but in terms of duty of care, I think it's to be, uh, to be a consultant to make sure that the debtor does, the debtor and debtor's counsel do what they're, do what they're supposed to be doing at the time that they do it. Uh, you know, Steve, maybe I, I can chime in there because I'm not sure I have a definitive answer to that. And as Steve said, you know, we'll probably find that find that out over time as we see courts rule on that at some point. Um, but I think the question really kind of goes to whether the, the debtors, whether the trustee is a fiduciary for the debtor or whether the trustee is a fiduciary for the creditors. And I would say that the trustee has duties to the case, not fiduciary duties to the creditors or fiduciary duties to the debtor because the trustee doesn't represent the debtor nor does the trustee represent the creditors, but they have duties to the case and not to um, the debtor or the specific duties to the debtors or the creditors. You know, it, it's, it's hard to imagine a situation where debtors counsel um, objects to the participation of the subchapter five trustee on the basis that it's none of the trustee's business. If the mandate is that the trustee facilitate um, the, the potential confirmation of a consensual plan, that's very broad in scope. And you know the fact that the trustee is required to advise the court um, at the status conference and at other junctures, when packaged with the history of the legislation, which involved a recognition that in chapter 11 cases, the smaller cases, uh, creditors simply weren't meaningfully participating. You know, it was not economically viable for creditors to form committees um, and in many cases uh, even participate in the formation of a plan and intelligently vote on a plan. And so this construct of the chapter, subchapter five trustee arose from that um, boiling cauldron. And so if the trustee comes in and says, 
I don't think this plan is fair and the debtor hasn't made any effort to uh, to reach a consensual plan, I would think a judge is going to listen, notwithstanding any protests of uh, debtor's counsel. Yeah, thank you, Judge. And, and, and as I think about it also in terms of where my either duties or loyalties lay, um, one of the reasons there, one of the reasons for a Chapter 11 trustee in these cases is because in small cases in particular, creditors committees either, either don't get formed uh, or they don't get, uh, or they, they, they can't be terribly effective. Uh, and also uh, in many of these small business cases, particularly for individuals, it's a combination of business debt and consumer debt. Uh, and you know, consumer creditors typically really don't get very involved in Chapter 11 cases. Uh, so I, I think on some level I am there as Bill, somewhere between what Bill said, which is to be there for the case, and, uh, and what Judge Panda said, which is to be there in some ways for, uh, for the interests of creditors, because those creditors uh, don't usually have a voice, uh, a loud voice, in uh, small Chapter 11 cases. Uh, so then... That kind of leads to the question, what do I do in particular cases? Uh, and I think that depends. There's a whole spectrum uh, of what I can be doing, and that depends in, uh, in large measure, I think, on the nature of the case, on the sophistication of the nature of the debtor, and on the sophistication of, the, of debtor's counsel. And the best I can do, again, by going back through 20 plus years of being a Chapter 12 trustee, uh, it runs the entire range. Uh, I have had some cases uh, in which the debtor is represented by uh, counsel uh, who's really very experienced, maybe more of a Chapter 11 attorney than uh, more of a Chapter 11 attorney. And that attorney is on top of everything, doesn't need help putting together a Chapter 12 plan, getting the right disclosures, getting the monthly operating reports filed. Uh, I've had other cases in which it was the first Chapter 12 or even Chapter 11 that debtor's counsel filed. Uh, and, and he or she needed some assistance and some guidance about what the deadlines were, what a plan would look like. I, I, I remember providing copies of other plans that had gone into, been used in Chapter 12 cases. Uh, and, and I think I'm there to be, in, in that sense, to be a resource to some extent for the debtor, um, but then also to make sure that things are happening the way they're supposed to be happening. I've had, I, did, I have had Chapter 12 cases over the years uh, where I filed, mo in one case, I, uh, in at least one case that I can think of, I filed a motion that to have the debtor removed as debtor in possession and for me to take control because the debtor was engaging in conduct that I did not think, uh, that, that I thought was in violation of, uh, in that case, her duties as, uh, uh, as debtor. Uh, I have filed motions to convert or dismiss cases. Uh, and obviously, I, I, I do have the standing to object to uh, to confirmation or to uh, or to claims, although typically my I would think in terms of objecting to claims, I would leave my default position would be to leave that up to uh, to debtor's counsel uh, because he or she knows uh, what her client his or her client's uh, uh, defenses or objections to particular claims are. Uh, I wouldn't have a problem re reviewing it if if debtor's counsel wanted to give me a draft plan. And have me take a look at it before it was filed. I wouldn't have any problem doing that and troubleshooting it at that point sometime before the 90 days are up. Uh, and, and then uh, the, the next uh, part of this is, uh, it, 
from a trustee's point of view is always important is compensation. One of the things, I don't know if Bill touched on it or not, compensation is a little different uh, in, for chapter 11, the subchapter five cases. Um, the first part of this uh, is that there's a recent case, uh, if I can put my glasses on for a moment, it's a case called Penland Heating, and it just came out earlier this month. Uh, I, I think the court said the default position, for lack of a better way of putting it, is that chapter, some Chapter 5 trustees should not be hiring counsel. Uh, there we go. Uh, should not be hiring counsel or other professionals. Uh, and in the case I've been appointed, I indeed, I, I, don't, I have not filed an application to employ my firm as counsel. Um, conversely, uh, the chapter, subchapter 5, Chapter 11 trustee compensation is not done on a commission basis uh, the way a Chapter 12 commission, uh, Chapter 12 trustees commission is, which I believe is 5% of, uh, of dis distributions to creditors and uh, our Chapter 13's commission, which is 10%. Uh, it, it appear, it's, it's not covered by Section 326 of the Bankruptcy Code. Uh, it seems to be covered more by the reasonableness standard under Section 330. Uh, so I, my default position uh, will be that, that I'm entitled to compensation at my hourly rate. Having said that, uh, I am very much aware that especially in small business cases, uh, this is my experience as Chapter 11 Debtors Council, as Chapter 11 Trustee, as Creditors Committee Council, that small business cases, one of the re things that cause, it, that cause them to be so difficult to be successful is that the expenses, uh, the administrative expenses just overwhelmed the resources of a small business debtor. By the time you get Creditors Committee Council, Debtors Council, an accounting firm, a consultant, and so forth, the administrative expenses got enormously high. Uh, so again, I'm speaking for me uh, as a subchapter five trustee, I'm mindful of that. I can get paid over a period of time, as Bill alluded to, uh, from payments that, 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 from monies that I distribute. Uh, but, I th but that is one of the, uh, the bigger differences. So uh, I think that's how I look at it. And, and again, as a chapter, subchapter five, I can't have, it, have to keep getting used to that phrase, but as a subchapter five, chapter 11 trustee, I want the cases to be successful. The, the, there are obviously a lot of requirements to have that happen, but I want them to be successful. Uh, and and I, I, I'm looking forward to uh, getting a few more of these as time goes by to, to see how this all plans that shakes out. Thanks, Steve. That's great. Um, in the interest of time, I'm just going to clip along through <clears throat> the next couple slides. Um, we just, and you, I understand all the attendees have the handout. Um, we thought it was interesting just to take a quick look at the actual cases that have filed um, since February, and it's a sort of a breakdown in Region 1 plus Puerto Rico. You can see that the nature of the businesses on these slides and, and when they filed. Maine is by far doing its duty um, to embrace subchapter five. And in fact, at 11.30 this morning, Maine added yet another subchapter five case, which didn't make it onto this slide. Um, but you can just see the nature of the businesses and um, also interesting to kind of track over the coronavirus um, pandemic. You know, is there a trend here? Obviously it's a very limited amount of data um, but, you know, you've, you've clearly got the restaurants, 
that are obviously incredibly constrained right now in terms of revenue flow versus, you know, transportation and logistics companies, which if you pull that, those MORs, they're actually cash flowing just fine right now. So I think that'll be interesting to watch as, as the year progresses. Um, but let's jump to the cases because that's really what we, we should spend the rest of our time covering. Um, we're we're going to have four general categories, and the first one is retroactivity. Can subchapter five apply to existing cases? The answer is a resounding yes. Um, starting with the progressive solutions case, which was actually the issue was fully briefed, as I understand it, before the act went effective, and they got that decision out you know, two days after the, the effective date of the act, courts are generally saying that the subchapter five election can happen in general in, in existing cases. Um, now there's an outlier that we put on the slide there where the, it's, it's, there's not a lot of analysis in that decision, but it, it they, the court said no. Um, but in every case, right, this is all going to be about prejudice to the creditors um, and, and does, is the election, is switching your, because remember, you're not converting to another chapter. You're in chapter 11. You, this is a, this is a, a different, this, there really is no analogy here to, to, you know, converting from a 7 to an 11 or a 13 to an 11. This is a chapter 11 case where you're amending the petition. And one of the things, uh, and I don't need to interrupt too much, David, one of the things that people should be aware of is a conversation that we had on the panel uh, getting ready for this is the conversion of the case from a regular chapter 11 to a, uh, to a subchapter 5 chapter 11 doesn't necessarily change the deadlines on anything. Uh, it's, this would be an amendment to the petition, not a motion to convert. Uh, and uh, if counsel wants to convert and amend uh, convert a, an existing chapter 11 case to subchapter five, uh, it might be a good practice uh, to also include a motion to reset the deadlines. Uh, I, I won't dare to guess whether the judges would grant that motion or not, but uh, just the consensus I think was that just filing the notice of conversion or of election to subchapter five doesn't change any deadlines. I think that's right, Steve, and, uh, and that just uh, reinforces the, the, the fact that um, I'm filing, a, and you can do it as of right, according to the federal rules, you can amend your petition without leave of court, and someone has to object if they have a problem with it, which is what one of the cases points out, but the, the, I think that the, the practical flaw in doing that is these deadlines, and I think it would, it would be a much safer approach for a converting debtor to make a motion uh, to to uh, to amend to subchapter five and to amend the, uh, and, to, and to change the deadlines all all in one fell swoop. I'm not convinced. Uh, and this is it's too early to 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 for for this to have come up. I think, but I'm not convinced that the, that the rule that provides for amending petitions as a matter of right ever thought about this situation where the amendment was to, to, to pick a different subchapter with all these different substantive changes and rules 
and, and say that a debtor can do that without uh, prior leave of court. But we'll see how that plays itself out. And I just, just to make one other point to follow up on what uh, Judge Hoffman and what Steve said, uh, parties and in interest also could can object to that election as well. Uh, so the parties and in interest have 30 days to object to that amendment. So I, so I think, well, it may be very easy to get into subchapter five. As Steve said, you better have to make sure you can stay in subchapter five because you can meet the deadlines or some other party in interest, um, you know, may file, you know, something contesting your ability to stay in subchapter five. Well, I, I would also think uh, something we hadn't talked about is if there's a creditors committee in a sub in a normal, what I'll call a normal chapter 11 case and the debtor elects to, uh, elects to go to subchapter five, what happens to the creditors committee? That, that case is live in the Central District of California right now. Uh, there was a creditors committee in a case and they elected to amend to subchapter five. The committee had not, um, the committee had been appointed, but they had their application for retention for the professionals had not been approved yet. And the committee actually argued because the committee was set up, they were not eligible to go into subchapter five. Um, the court did rule that it did not believe that prohibited uh, the amendment to subchapter five, just, just the idea that a creditors committee was in existence. So uh, that is a live issue right now out in the Central District of California. Uh, courts that have uh, looked at these issues about amending to make the election, um, you know, at a, at a later date in the case have really looked to um, kind of the retroactivity standards and, you know, what are the substantive rights that are being affected and, you know, in these converted cases uh, that not converted, but the uh, cases where an election is now made that either wasn't available at the time the debtor filed or the debtor failed to make it and now wants to make it. And so far, most of the courts, as you know, you see in your slides, have taken a fairly practical approach of whether the relief can be afforded you know, found that there's no um, per se prohibition about making the election because um, the statute didn't limit that and the rules say what they say. Um, and they really analyze whether any significant property rights are being affected and whether the cases are so advanced and the parties have, you know, invested in those cases. So a newly formed committee um, probably isn't going to be um, as persuasive to a judge as you know, where there there are dip financing orders that grant all sorts of rights and remedies, and uh, and then the whole ball game is going to change with uh, with a subchapter five election. So let's jump to eligibility, uh, which is a related matter. Who is eligible to be a subchapter five debtor? Now, uh, Bill covered at the start the necessity for having business debts and to be engaged in business. But what does that mean exactly? Does that mean that I have to literally be in running as a going concern? Well, some courts on the really pushing the edges of eligibility would say no. Um, the Wright case out of South Carolina allowed an individual to proceed in subchapter five after he had essentially assumed the debts of his LLCs that he had previously wound down. Um, so th there's no, you, you know, when you talk about the, what does it mean to be engaged in business? 
Well, part of the business of a company, I suppose you could argue, is includes its, its wind down activities. And so at least so far, some courts have been open to, um, to accepting that. And um, in addition, the, the business debts themselves, um, what constitutes a business debt is also um, receiving some, some, some really uh, interesting uh, fact patterns and decisions that, that we'll be looking for. Um, the, obviously, the, the, the raising of the debt limit to 7.5 million under the CARES Act is going to make um, a lot of more businesses eligible for this relief while that uh, provision's in effect. Um, I did find it interesting, the um, In Ray Beaver case up in Maine, where you had uh, a number of financed equipment that was, you know, you could argue that could count as secured debt, but the debtor, I thought, very uh, astutely took the position that those were leased payments, and, um, and that, that helped with uh, meeting the eligibility. So I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, how debtors' counsel really thinks as broadly as you can about who is eligible for these cases. And so far, courts uh, appear to be um, you know, taking the spirit of the SBRA as it was intended. And, um, and granting eligibility. Does anyone have any other thoughts yeah, on eligibility? I, I, I would agree with what you just said. I, I would say in the In Ray Wright case in South Carolina, um, you know, we naturally thought, we actually took a, we raised the issue of whether the de debtor was engaged in business because the debtor had closed um, its business operations prior to filing that case. And it actually had filed and liquidated two Chapter 11 or two businesses through Chapter 11 previously and had some, you know, um, <clears throat> carry over old business debt that it personally, that the debtor personally needed to wrap up. Um, and we really thought engaged in business meant at the time of the petition operating a business um, and not just, you know, resolving old business debt. So I, I agree with you that, that some courts have looked at this in a very broad manner um, to assist, you know, not only small business debtors, but small business debtors um, who have prior business debt to resolve those debts. So I think it is, courts are looking at it in the spirit of the SBRA in a broad way. Great. Okay, let's take a look at uh, a substantive tool that's probably one of the most popular things in the SBRA, uh, I, I guess a headline grabber, if you will. Mortgage modification. Um, in Chapter 11 and Chapter 13, every bankruptcy lawyer knows that a, an individual debtor cannot modify a consensual lien on a principal residence. And in the SBRA, that is uh, no longer the case. If the, um, if, if the um, structure is used as the principal residence of the debtor, um, that does not necessarily mean that it is protected from cram down anymore. And the Ventura case, I would say if you're going to read any SBRA case, read Ventura first, because th so far this touches all the bases of what we have been talking about. Um, eligibility, retroactivity, and mortgage modification. I'm just going to give 
everybody a quick rundown of the facts of this case. Um, so the, the individual, um, a, a woman whose surname is Ventura, purchased a piece of real estate back in 2007. It was a historically protected landmark on Long Island. And from the beginning, she rented out rooms in this house. Now she financed the purchase with a million dollar loan and she lived at the property, but she was, she was renting rooms um, more or less continuously from, from the beginning of the lending relationship. About 10 years later in 2017, she gets, uh, goes through the process with the town to get licensed to operate a bed and breakfast. Now, in the meantime, the debtor had, had issues over the years with making her mortgage payment. Six, a, six, a six unit bed and breakfast. Six unit bed and breakfast. Um, so the, the history, and you gotta feel for the secured creditors in this case, everybody. <laughs> you gotta feel for the secured creditor. There was a loan mod in 2017, a no asset individual chapter seven, sorry, in 2013, a loan mod and a failed chapter 13 in 2014. There was um, a, a permit to operate the property in 2016. There was a chapter 11 filing in 2018 to stop the foreclosure, which this creditor had doggedly pursued. And it gets worse for the secured creditor because in this case in chapter 11, since October, 2018, made it all the way through the exclusivity period, the secured creditor got the right to file a sale plan. It solicited votes for the sale plan. The confirmation hearing came with a return of ballots. And at that point, the SBRA had just become effective. And the bankruptcy judge allowed the debtor some time to amend the petition. And so, as you can imagine, this case is, was, was hotly contested by that secured creditor. And the Ventura decision is dealing with retroactivity. Now, you know, we just talked about vested rights and, and when are rights vested? Well, in this case, the secured creditor literally had the votes and was heading into a confirmation hearing. And the case uh, was allowed to, to switch to a subchapter five. So the Ventura case, really interesting fact pattern. It is up on appeal at the Second Circuit. Um, so I think we're going to learn a lot, although the, the fact pattern, and I think everyone else would agree with me, is, is fairly extreme and unique. Um, and in this case, the judge did not decide whether mortgage modification was possible but he did say that it could at least be theoretically possible to borrow money to buy a building a and the primary purpose still be for your business. So the 1190 section three uses the word primary, the primary purpose of the loan. So even on that fat pattern I gave you, we, we, have, we have possibly a mortgage modification. I was thinking that the Ventura, the Ventura case pushes the envelope on just about every single category of things we were talking about up to now on eligibility, uh, because 
uh, it seems clear to me that she's not eligible because she's a single asset real estate debtor uh, under the definition, a, a, a single piece of real estate generating income of more than four units. Uh, retroactivity, because as you said, this case was up to the day of confirmation when, when she decided to, to take the election. Um, and then the mortgage modification, uh, a, a loan to buy a house that she decided to start renting uh, rooms out of like an Airbnb. Is that, is that, does that qualify her uh, to modify the mortgage? So it, we'll see what, what uh, uh, it went to the district court in, in, in uh, uh, the Eastern District of New York and we'll see what happens. And I think even to add, even add to pile on to that, um, in her prior case, um, she did indicate that her debt was consumer debt, not business debt, that, that the mortgage debt. So, um, <laughs> and then did not file this initial case as a small business case. So claiming, again, uh, representing it to be consumer debt, not business debt. So uh, the facts are very, I, as Judge Hoffman said, I think this pushes the envelope of each one of the categories that came up in this case with respect to the facts. Bill, are you the appellant in that case? We are not. We're not participating in the appeal. So that, that's why I felt I could at least say a few things. I, if, we were, if we were participating, I would have been more quiet. So the last case we want to cover today is one in Puerto Rico called International Food Servicing. This is the debtor was in the business of packaging and delivering food products. Um, and it filed on March 20th. And an interesting issue came up. So this isn't a reported decision um, per se. There's, a, there's a, an order that has been entered by the bankruptcy judge. But um, the, the issue that came up in this case was the debtor has taken a position that it does not have to solicit votes in subchapter five. And the trustee, on the other hand, has taken the position that voting is absolutely necessary. The court has sided with the trustee. The debtor had moved for reconsideration and that motion was denied. The debtor has moved again for reconsideration. The debtor has also appealed this decision to the BAP. So the, the question that this case raises that we all found interesting, um, and perhaps we found it a little bit interesting because there really wasn't a lot of um, writing on this or discussion about this, um, in the, in the past year since the SBRA has been, you know, going through Congress and being signed into law. Um, so is, do you have to solicit votes in a chapter 11 plan? Now, uh, before I stop talking, I'll just, I'll just lay out what the law is here on this slide. Um, the, the court uh, speaks of two different ways that you can confirm a subchapter five plan. You can confirm the so-called consensual plan. Um, or if there isn't consent, you can do the cram down plan. And as Bill said, there's no absolute priority rule. You don't need an impaired accepting class. It's really a lot more of an efficient and quick and easy way to do a cram down. Um, but the question is, can you get there without, what do you have to prove to get there? Can you get there without soliciting votes or not? So the, the provisions we put up on this slide, uh, you know, contemplate the acceptance of the plan, 
Um, and the interim bankruptcy rules certainly contemplate um, balloting. But the debtor, in this case, notwithstanding that, has, has raised, I think, maybe some compelling arguments about whether it's necessary to go through that cost and expense if at the end of the day, it doesn't even need a single vote in favor to confirm a plan. So interesting to know, is this much ado about nothing or do we think this is going to be a trend that grows? Well, you know, what we talked about consensual plans all, all for this entire hour, there's no definition in the code of what is a consensual plan. Who knows what a consensual plan is? Does it require uh, a, uh, one accepting class or every uh, class to accept? If one, if one creditor uh, votes no on a plan, even if the class that that creditor is in uh, over, overrides that with the, you know, two thirds in, in, in uh, amount and the majority in number, is that, is that still a consensual plan? None of this is known. And so um, it, it'll be interesting to see how that gets defined. I suspect that the, the the simple answer is that you you can't have any dissenting classes. If there's a single dissenting class, you've got to do the cram down. But um, who knows? I mean, I could see an argument if you have a single a dissenting creditor. It's not a it's not a consensual plan. And well, I mean, good. Well, part of the discussion that we were having is in chapter. Typically in chapter 11, consent means you have to have a majority of creditors of, who vote in that class and the people that don't, uh, and lack of response does not count as consent. In a sale motion, on the other hand, generally speaking, the general rule of thumb is if the, if the uh, affected secured creditors have been noticed properly and have gotten notice of, an, of a proposed sale or disposition of property and they don't object, that's sufficient consent. So uh, again, what is the point of uh, you know, which is chapter subchapter five, chapter eleven confirmation going to look more like a sale or a confirmation hearing? Well, and the, what's interesting to me about this case, and don't know the facts well enough, is why is debtors' counsel so resistant to sending along a ballot, even though they're anticipating have to cram down, and not only resistant apparently, but willing to take an appeal on it. Uh, I mean, what's the, what's the ultimate point? I mean, if, if the point is, I'm not expecting to get consent, whatever that means, and I'm going to have to cram this down and operate under uh, two, and, um, you know, and so I don't even want to have to solicit votes. Okay, so what would happen if negative votes came in, and why, why not take this legal issue off the table? I mean, the other thing that I think you have to think about for debtors counsel who take that route and just try and say whether they send ballots or not, we're just, you know, we're going to non-consensual because, you know, we think someone's going to object and we think, you know, we're going to have some impaired class that objects and we're going to need to cram them down. Um, you know, there are, the, under, under subchapter five, there are differences. If you have a non-consensual plan that gets confirmed, the trustee stays involved longer. Um, you know, the court has an opportunity to look at, um, you know, the disposable income issue. And, you know, what that means, the court can make an assessment potentially of whether it's reasonable to have a three-year commitment or a five-year commitment. 
And, you know, what does creditor support play into that and the ultimate fairness of the plan? Um, you know, these are all unopened, uh, unaddressed questions um, that will just play out as we get these cases. But you can see debtors counsel saying, hey, look, the statute's drafted in a way where, you know, whether I get the votes or not, it doesn't really matter. And if I don't care about any of those other issues, you know, why don't I just go right in and do a cram down plan? That seems to violate the spirit of the process. Um, but apparently it's very important to this lawyer in Puerto Rico. Well, I think that probably best practices is, is a, in most cases is a, a form of plan should emerge that, um, and I don't know if the, the, maybe the analogy is a convenience class, the way those work, where you've, where I've drafted my plan so that it, it, it can work uh, in A or B. And I'm, you know, if I, if I get a, a creditor voting affirmatively, they're going to get a payment on the effective date. And if I get a creditor that doesn't open their mail, then um, they're going to get, uh, you know, signed up to the three to five year program. Um, obviously, it's not ideal because I don't want to be in bankruptcy for three to five years. And it's probably ultimately going to affect debtors that have a harder time communicating on a monthly basis with their creditors. Um, and, may, and maybe that means individuals, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, I, I agree with the point that Steve made that, that, that the word is accepted, it's not consent like it is in 363F. Um, so I think that a court could take, uh, or and an advocate could take uh, a position that those are, those are different concepts and that accept requires uh, something, you know, written down, a piece of paper that, that you can show at confirmation. You know, and just to follow up on what David and Judge Pano said, I don't see why you'd take the tack that why not comply with the code in 1126 and seek acceptances um, because you may get lucky and then you get into a consensual plan situation and you don't have to deal with the requirements of a non-consensual plan. Um, the one other one we didn't talk about is, um, you know, all your projected disposable income has to be um, allocated to the non-consensual plan as opposed to what you can negotiate under a consensual plan with your creditors. So there are a lot of additional requirements in the non-consensual plan, and it would seem to make sense to me. And I, and I particularly if trying to do the math in the Puerto Rico case as to why it was more cost effective to appeal and take that up on appeal rather than to seek acceptances in that case. And I can't make that math work in my head. So, um, so I'm not really sure what the real problem was for why they wanted to appeal that issue. We did have one question earlier in the hour, which I think we might've answered by now, but whether the question was whether the owner of a multifamily rental property who's also a resident at that property could qualify as a chapter five debtor? I think the answer is yes, um, provided that there is business debt. Um, but that as I think, I think read the Ventura case as well, because just because you can qualify doesn't necessarily mean that you can more, you can cram down that mortgage. Um, and consider but, whether you're a single asset real estate case. 
as well, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, read the definition of it, because a multifamily doesn't tell us how many units. So um, read the definition of senior single asset real estate. Right, because you can't, you can't get into subchapter five if you're a SAR. That is true. So. Can, we, can we address the compensation issue? Because there seem to be a couple yeah. of questions we, on the compensation. Yeah, yeah we've got a little time for that, sure. Yeah, and I, and I think Steve touched on it. Uh, compensation, you know, what's clear under the code is that a tr the subchapter five trustees compensation is subject to 330 um, review like any other trustee. Um, but what we've said to our trustees and, and the case that was talked about is a case in North Carolina where the US trustee is not operating. So we have told all our trustees that they should not be hiring counsel so I was very pleased to see that came up in North Carolina and not any jurisdiction under the U.S. trustees control. But um, we've also told all of our trustees when they filed their affidavit of disinterestedness at the beginning of the case that they should file a pair, they should put in there a paragraph of their proposed compensation. Uh, so that can start the discussion between the trustee and the debtors as to, you know, whether there's going to be any problem with the trustee's compensation during the course of the case. So everybody knows what the trustee is proposing for their compensation. There have been many cases where, depending on what the trustee did in the case, the, the trustees have, in some of the cases so far, renegotiated their compensation to being a flat fee or something else in a small case where they didn't have to do a lot of work. So there, the trustee can work with the debtor about what their compensation structure is going to be and can negotiate with the debtor um, prior to the plan process as to how they are going to be compensated. Because as Steve said, the trustees really want to make these cases work and they don't want to be the reason one of these cases doesn't work, um, but they obviously want to get paid for the work that they're doing. So there can be a discussion during the course of the case, but then the trustee is going to have to file a final fee app um, in the case or file a fee app in the case. Uh, so they do actually get paid their compensation. It is subject to 330 review and review by the court. I saw one other question that um, is worthy of putting it out there, even though I'm not sure that there's a good answer to it. And um, that was Nina Parker who asked, you know, what's the confidentiality that attaches to the communications between the subchapter five trustee and um, the debtor and the debtor's counsel? Um, you know, even, I think she even asked about privilege. Um, and so, you know, those, those are interesting questions. It's hard to imagine that the interests of a subchapter five trustee and the interests of a debtor are sufficiently aligned to support any type of common interest type privilege, even though, you know, the, the trustee is trying to facilitate a consensual plan. Um, so, you know, I think those are, those are things that have to be kept in mind as information is being shared. Um, and if ever, anyone believes that confidentiality attaches to those communications, it might be wise to get some sort of a stipulation before the judge um, kind of laying that out and seeing whether, uh, whether the court agrees. So in other words, chapter five trustee can't waive the attorney-client privilege of the debtor. Like you can in a uh, in an ordinary chapter eleven, right, right. Uh, well, for for a corporation, right. Right. Uh, the the other interesting question that comes up, and again, there there, there was some dialogue going forward on the NABT website over the last couple of days about this, is whether the whether if a debtor in this in this particular case was a Chapter Seven debtor provides documents uh, to a to a Chapter Seven trustee, and then a creditor asks for those documents. Uh, does the Chapter 7 trustee 
uh, have to provide those documents? Should the Chapter 7 trustee not provide those documents because some of it may be confidential information and so forth? I think that's a better, that, that's a trickier question actually than the whether, whether the communications are privileged. Well, what about in mediation? Either a, confident, a confidential statement that each side gives to a mediator um, might be analogous, right? There's perhaps the, if the debtor, maybe it would be prudent to get some sort of a protective order entered in the case that, that dealt with that and allowed for a confidential data to be shared with the trustee. Because as we were saying earlier, the trust, without a duty of, of loyalty to the creditors, the trustee's not necessarily then compelled to go and share that information with the creditors in the case. Um, the trustee enjoys, I, I suppose, somewhat of a fluid role. Um, and, and so maybe that's the answer, uh, similar to like a mediation scenario. Right. But I think in the mediation scenario, as Judge Pano said, you would get an order um, making the mediation order would provide for, you know, confidentiality of the documents that are used in the mediation. So I think to be safe, because I agree that I don't see how, you know, a, you're going to get um, <laughs> the attorney client privilege providing, you know, staying in place if you're handing it over to the trustee because I don't think you have a common interest with the trustee. So I think you'd be much better served getting an order if you wanted to give confidential documents to the trustee. Because um, I, I, I just think I wouldn't want to run that risk as debtor's counsel. Um, and I think it's different because in this case, it, you, you can't waive the privilege because you're not stepping into the shoes of the debtor like you would if you were operational trustee. So I think that's what makes it different, right? A subchapter five trustee is a consulting trustee, not a trustee who steps into the shoes of the debtor, which is why you can waive the privilege if you're an operating trustee. It feels more like the um, relationship of a creditor's committee to debtor's counsel in some ways, um, you know, where confidential information is provided under confidentiality that's approved by the court um, that has its limitations and, um, you know, and doesn't extend to privilege waiver, um, but has protections in case they're inadvertent disclosures and various other things. Um, you know, I would think that, that that's probably the direction that most subchapter five trustees would move in. Um, and, and maybe if there was some evaluation of some specific issue that required some uh, disclosure of, of something that might be subject to a privilege, then they'd come back to the court for some protection on that. But I agree, if I were practicing, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't send over the, uh, the file, um, you know, I, without some protection. We also had one other question at the beginning about whether um, if you're going to do a cram down, do you need to hire an appraisal you need to get get those the, the add those costs, and I believe that the that you know most case law in juris, most jurisdictions would back this up that the debtor can testify to the value of its own property. Now, whether that suffices, and you, you know you're you're going to open your client to cross examination on that, but um, you don't necessarily need an appraisal um, to support one of these plans. Yeah, I mean, I, the the SBRA did not change the rules of evidence. So, you know, where, wherever you have a burden, you know, you have to meet that evidentiary burden. 
And, you know, we could do a whole program on, you know, lay opinion testimony and the limitations of that. Um, but, you know, I think you still have the, you still have the burden to demonstrate um, what you need to demonstrate, that you meet the best interest tests. Uh, you know, if you need to put on evidence of liquidation and the opinion of value of something, certainly the, the, you can offer the debtor's lay testimony with whatever caveats are associated with that. Um, but the, it didn't, the Small Business Act didn't change the rules of evidence or the evidentiary support that's necessary to confirm the plan. Okay, well, with that, I'd like to thank uh, my fellow panelists for um, a great hour of the SBRA, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll be, you know, there'll be more to say in the future as this uh, subchapter five continues to grow. Um, so thank you to the BBA for having us, and uh, thanks to the attendees for your, your patience uh, over the last two hours. So, Thanks, David. Hey. David, thanks. And thanks again to Judge Panos, Judge Hoffman, Judge Bailey, and Judge Bostwick, and all the panelists today for putting together this really great program. This has been really informative and helpful as we all try to educate ourselves in these changing times for what is to come. Um, I just want to make a couple of really quick remarks before we all adjourn to our own private post-webinar cocktails. Um, I want to thank the BBA, especially Alexa Daniel, Jenna Kim, and Daniel Tillman for all of their support in helping the bankruptcy section put on great webinars like this one in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, we have one final education program before our summer break. Um, that's going to be next Tuesday, June 30th from 11 to noon, and that's going to be on remote litigation, including remote trials, depositions, mediation, and arbitration. Um, we thought in light of the backlog of evidentiary hearings and trials building up in the courts and all of the courts and coupled uh, with the expected boom and new bankruptcy filings start starting sometime in the fall or winter that litigants might be faced with the necessity of remote litigation. Um, I don't think that any judge in Massachusetts has in the Massachusetts bankruptcy courts has ordered any party to try a case by video, but I would note that Rule 43A of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure uh, may give the court authority to require a video trial um, with its standard of with good cause in compelling circumstances and with appropriate safeguards, the court may per uh, permit testimony in open court by transmission from a different location. So um, the panel on Tuesday of next week is going to feature three litiga litigators who have participated in multiple aspects of remote litigation. Um, that's Catherine Krakawa of Murray Plum and Murray, who recently was part of a trial in front of Judge Fagoni in Maine, and Dan Line and Andrea MacGyver and my firm, who have been participating in remote depositions and remote mediation. So. I hope you can join us for that. And we wish you could join us in person for a cocktail, but maybe here's hoping next time that that will be allowed. So thank you everyone. That was great. Thank you all very much. Have a good night.